The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the, di- and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child should not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to enter and to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one, one thing. Go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Katie. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the 11 o'clock, feels like 12 o'clock service. It's, uh, it's good to be with you. Before we jump in, if, if you don't know me, my name is Dave. I'm just one of the pastors here. And uh, I haven't been preaching for the last two weeks. If you missed either one of those sermons from Pastor Steve or Pastor JJ, I'd go back and listen to them online. They were great and so helpful. Um, but I'm excited to be with you all to continue in the Gospel of Mark. As we get ready to do that, real quick, two things uh, just regarding family business. Um, The last Sunday of November, which is like a couple weeks away, we're going to take a break from Mark and we're going to begin our Advent series. Uh, We're going to be rooted in the Old Testament, looking at some great stories that help us uh, just realize the longing we all have for a Savior. And then we're going to actually participate in um, heading out of Christmas, starting December 26th uh, into the first maybe two or three weeks of the new year. celebrating Christmas tide. So we're not going to pack up all the Christmas trees and stop singing Christmas carols right after Christmas. We're going to just linger as the church historically has and continue to celebrate. So we're going to take a good seven weeks to celebrate Christmas together. I'm excited about that. I bring it up specifically because uh, either 
you know, heading into December or even after Christmas. It's a really sweet time and uh, tends to be a, a really powerful time to invite maybe a friend, coworker, family member, a neighbor to church to hear the gospel. So just be prayerfully thinking of who you might invite with you. And then the uh, next thing is that January, I believe, 2020, we started our third service, the five o'clock service, and uh, that has been great, really helpful, particularly through the season of 2020, so we could you know, make room and socially distance, all that great stuff. But in the last few months, great stuff. I don't know if I'd categorize it as great, but, uh, as, but what we were able to do with that third service is really make room uh, in that season. Um, but we were able to add quite a few chairs in here the last couple months, and um, we have room for everybody that's coming to the five to either come to the nine or the 11. And so if you, by chance, are just kind of a choose-your-own-adventure, you don't come to the 11, you come to whatever service, our, our last 5 o'clock service will be next week, the 14th. And after that, we'll retire it for a season. Who knows? It might come back. Um, but uh, for, a, for a while, we're going to just have our 9, our 11. I'm excited about it. And I'm just, if you have any ideas of like a hobby I can tell, I have three hours of time I'm getting back. So baking is probably the number one thing I'm thinking about. So just any, any ideas for me or, or some of the volunteers we can do with uh, the Sunday night, that'd be, that'd be great. I'm all ears. So I'm going to pray for you, you pray for me, and then we've got some great stuff and quite a bit to get into. So let's pray with and for one another. Father, I thank you for my friends, and we just pray by the power of the Spirit, as we look at the work of the Son, we'd be able to see the love of the Father, and that you would help us um, just have our eyes open and, and ears ready to hear and soft hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning, and really help me in a real way just serve my friends and, and point to you. Jesus, we pray this in your name. God's people said, amen. I was reading an article this week, and it was uh, uh, by a woman named Marjorie Hansen Shavitz. Marjorie, excuse me, Marjorie uh, Hansen Shavitz. And she has this company called Admission Impossible. And what she does is she works with high school students, namely juniors and seniors, and their guardians, parents, um, to help them get into the college that they want to get into. And one of the exercises she does when she sits down with the student for the first time is that she invites, she starts with the guardian, the parent, the grandparent, and she asks them to just be able to begin to list kind of characteristics, words, phrases that describe this student. And so one parent will pipe up and they'll say, brilliant or tough or hardworking. And then the other parent will begin to chime in, like caring, respectful, responsible. They even maybe call a best friend or a favorite teacher in that meeting, and they ask for input. Then eventually, uh, Marjorie will ask the student themselves. And the aim is to just come up with a, a list of characteristics that will really be able to communicate to that college why this student is worthy of acceptance. You know, like Stanford University has a standard question every year on, on their application to be admitted. And the question is, hey, list five things about yourself that best describe you. And as each student and those that are helping them be accepted to that university see that question, they know that that isn't a place for probably total honesty. <laughs> it's, a, it's a place to impress. Hey, these are things about me that you need to know that are going to communicate that I'm valuable, I'm worthy, I'm worth the investment, and I'm actually going to make Stanford or whatever university a better place if you let me in. 
And so Ms. Shavit, she comes up with this exercise in this article, and it was, it was literally an alphabetical list of the 150 best words that she was encouraging people to use on their college application so that they would be accepted into the university of their choice. And she went through A, academic, articulate, autonomous, B, balanced, brilliant, C, capable, confident, courageous, D, daring, driven, dependable, and as deeper as the alphabet got, the more creative she had to be. Vivacious, worldly, what do you do with X? That's always the question. She went with xenophile, which I didn't know what that meant. It means lover of foreign things, right? If you're gonna use that, honestly, you probably are going to college. That's a, that's a big word. Zealous. Why do I bring this up? Uh, I think each of us, whether we've been following Jesus for a while and we're considering what, it, what does it look like to move towards God, to be accepted into God's kingdom, or just considering what that would look like and exploring Christianity, oftentimes each and every one of us can think about acceptance into the kingdom of God a little bit like being accepted into college. Perhaps God is giving us an application, and the first question is, list five things about yourself. Are you worthy? Are you worth the investment? Will you improve the kingdom? What do you have to add or bring that will benefit? What we see in this scripture that Katie read for us today, and we've seen as we've continued to study Mark, is that there is a characteristic, there is an attribute that we must all have to be accepted into the kingdom of God. But it's probably something that we would never put on an application or a resume. But it's essential. It's, it's essential to be accepted into the, the kingdom of God, to, to know, to be close, to follow Jesus. What does it take to follow Jesus? What brings us close to him? What can stand as a barrier between us and drawing close to him? What can be a hindrance? This passage of scripture speaks to all those important questions today. So we're just gonna work our way through it and we're gonna do so in three points. And the first thing I want us to see is this. Number one, childlike trust is required to follow Jesus. All through Mark, we see people seeking to, to touch and be touched by Jesus, right? And on this day, we see this scenario where moms, likely moms and dads, have gathered to bring their kids to be touched by Jesus. And we're not told that any of these kids have like any specific needs. They're, they're not described as being sick or being oppressed. They just have a dad or a mom or maybe a grandpa or a grandma that's in line. We just imagine Jesus is in a home and there's a line outside and it probably looks a little bit like a, a line at the mall around December where just families are waiting to take a picture with Santa except something far richer and deeper is happening here. Uh, you know, Brianna mentioned like baby dedications happening and that's a time where we pray for parents and kids and we bless them. This is a baby dedication or a child dedication happening with Jesus in the flesh. How awesome, right? What a good idea. But evidently, everybody didn't think it was a good idea because the disciples are upset about it. They're actually rebuking these parents. And that's probably hard for us to understand. Why on earth would you send a parent away who just wanted their child to, to be held and prayed for by the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Well, we just suspect that the, 
the disciples had this misguided notion that they were protecting Jesus's priorities and time because in this moment in history, even in this culture, this Jewish culture, children had low standing. They were lowly. They were viewed as unimportant. And so the disciples are thinking, like, what do these parents think they're doing adding to the burdens of Jesus, bringing him these babies to hold and kids to pray for? What a waste of time and precious resources. We can just imagine Peter walking through the line saying, hey, Jesus doesn't have time for pictures with the kids this afternoon. Kindly move, like leave the line, make room for people with real needs and, and take that stroller and, and don't let your kids touch anything. No running, right? You know? And Jesus just getting wind of this, just getting a, a, a taste and a, a view of what's happening. And how does he feel about it? Verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. So Jesus sees what's happening, sees what his disciples are doing. And this word indignant is deep and rich with meaning. It's like, it's a combination of much and grief. It's, a, it's like this affliction. He's deeply bothered and he's angry, rooted in the sense of injustice. He's saying, what you guys are doing is wrong. And, and why it's so wrong is they are, as his disciples, actually misrepresenting his heart and the father's heart. They're standing between kids and Jesus. And what we see is that if you want to make Jesus upset, stand between him and anybody who seeks him, especially kids. So what does Jesus have to say? Verse 14, when he saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, hey, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, hey, don't stand in the way of these kids. Because coming to me, they're, they're a picture of what that looks like. Me as king, I belong to people such as them. The kingdom to, belongs to people like them. There's a, uh, one of the things I love about the city of Edmonton is just like all the art, all the public art. And there's a tiny statue that's easy to miss. It's right outside around the corner, downtown Edmonton. It's like 20 eight inches tall, I think. It's a little tiny scripture, or a statue with a, uh, the scripture at the bottom of it. It's called Come to Me. It's by an artist in Tulsa named uh, Rosalind Cook. And even though it's tiny, I love it so much because you, you got Jesus with, I believe, a little boy on his lap and two little girls by his side, but, but I love Jesus's face. You gotta get really close to see it, but you can just see such delight and joy that he has holding those kids. And I just imagine Jesus' face as he's saying this to the disciples, as he's receiving these kids. Hey, don't stand in the way of these kids coming to me. The kingdom belongs to people like them. That's an interesting thing to say in that moment, right? What does it mean? Jesus goes deeper in verse 15, and he, in detail, tells us. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I think sometimes these words are, are misunderstood, mistaught. And I, I vaguely remember, even in my own life and walk with Jesus, these being mistaught to me somewhere along the lines. And usually they're mistaught in one or two or both ways. And somebody can take this verse, and when Jesus says, hey, whoever does not receive the kingdom like this child shall not enter it, maybe... Jesus is saying that to, to draw near to him, to be loved by him, to enter into his kingdom, it means that you have to be innocent like a child. 
You have to be angelic and pure like a child, and then God will accept you. There's some problems with that. The first problem is that it's just like contrary to the very gospel to say, hey, you have to have certain qualities. You have to have a self-righteousness in yourself that qualifies you to draw near to God. That's not the message of scripture at all. What's also a problem with that, as a parent you may know, that that's not how kids are. (laughs) They're not pure and angelic and innocent, right? I have lots of examples of that as a dad of four, but one from this morning is my three-year-old is potty training, right? Barely three, turned three in October. And he's potty training, and if he pee-pees in the potty, he gets a peanut butter M&M. And so this morning, I caught on a little late, but this morning, he, he, he... He was literally fraudulent. He was gaming the system because he woke up and he peed a little bit in the the toilet and then he shut off the faucet and he went and got a peanut butter M&M. Then he goes back like a minute later and pees some more and is going for another peanut butter M&M. And I'm like, that's... That's genius, A, you know, but, and, and B, like, I don't know if that's healthy for you, but C, you're lying through your peeping. I know that you don't need to go six times in 10 minutes. Like, I'm on to you, man, right? That's, that's not even the worst thing he did this morning, but it's just an example that if we all, especially if we parent a three-year-old, you know, there's not a lot of innocence and purity there, right? Even though there is a lot of cuteness. Well, maybe it's, it's to... The message is to be, you know, they wouldn't use this term, but ignorant like a child or simple-minded. Hey, to come into the kingdom means to, to not question things, just to, to believe without thinking too deeply, just a blind faith. That's what Jesus requires. Well, that's not how kids are either, and that's not the call to faith in Scripture either. Children think deeply. They're often surprisingly insightful and smart when it comes to spiritual matters. A couple months ago, I, I was with Pastor Kale in the adult baptism class we have and the children's baptism class. We have them back-to-back on a Sunday. And it was astonishing to me, in fact, the, the most insightful, deeply thought-out spiritual questions came from little girls who were seven, eight years old. They'd been thinking deeply about wonder and creation and eternity and salvation and suffering So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that to be accepted into God's kingdom, to gain entrance, to to come to him, to, to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, you need to be childlike in this way. And it comes down to to a single word. You need to be childlike because you need to have and own and be aware of your need. To be childlike means to to, to have weakness and dependency. A child is entirely dependent on a parent, and that is the nature of what it means to be a child. To need to trust. It's at the center of their existence. So when Jesus says, hey, the kingdom belongs to, to those like these children. To come to me, you have to be like a child. He's not saying you have to be innocent. He's not saying that you don't think deeply. He's saying that you need to not come proving worth, but you need to come open-handed saying, I need you, Lord. I need you for grace and life and forgiveness. And I'm dependent upon The scripture is so rich with meaning for us as a church. I think one of the things it means when we just think about not our hearts, but first and foremost, our our hands, is that it means that we are in a good place if we have a heart for children as a church. 
That Jesus, who had the most demands on his time, that lived the most significant life in history, the very son of God, he took time for children. He wasn't too busy. He didn't have more important things. He thought little boys and little girls were worthwhile and important. And so we must never lose sight of, as a church, making them a priority and loving and leading and serving them in the Christ Jesus. According to Barna Research, and I know sometimes when we hear the word research, we can begin to tune out, but I want to actually invite us to listen deeply here because this is a significant reality. According to Barna Research, 85% of people who become Christians do so between the ages of four and 14. So much so that, that missiologists are calling it the 414 window. It is such an overwhelming statistic, not just here in the States, but all around the world, that it's a reminder to the church that if we're not prioritizing children, we're not doing our job of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples because, as one pastor put it, that is the age of opportunity. Every child has a soul. They will spend either eternity with God or apart from God. And we have a God-given task to, to love and serve those kids by sharing the gospel with them. So real practically, like what happens on the north end of this building. In fact, why, however many years ago it was, four years ago, we bought this building as a church was because it had, by the grace of God, so much great space to love and gospel children. And so real practically, if, if we're looking for ways to serve and we're not yet serving, we're a part of this church, I can think of no better way than to evangelize and love and serve kids on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night if they're a teenager. So maybe just like the best thing we could do if we're looking at how to respond to this is grab that serve card in your chair and even if it's just once a month, take some time to, to walk the path of Jesus to prioritize loving and blessing kids. And I'm even just thinking of this not just as a church on a Sunday morning or a, or a community group meeting throughout the week, but to, to have a heart for children, I'm, I'm processing that this week even as a father of my children. I know so often I feel guilty because I, 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 I want to spend more time with my kids. And yet I read an article in the last couple weeks that mentioned that uh, um, dads on average today in 2021 spend three times the amount of time with their children as dads in 1965. Now, maybe like in 1965, dads just spent no time with their kids, you know, like formally met them like when they graduated from high school. I've been working for your whole life. You know, it's good to meet you. I love you a lot. The food has been coming from me. You know, it's, I'm your father. That is a good possibility. But the reality is, I, I think when I'm looking at my own life, it's not so much, hey, am I spending enough time with my kids in quantity? I'm asking in light of Jesus's heart, what's the quality of that time? that I'm spending with my kids? Am I like we've seen parents so far in Mark like Jairus or like the Syrophoenician mom? Am I bringing Jesus to my kids or am I bringing the concerns of my kids to Jesus? And I'm so thankful for Pastor Kale, who's our family pastor, Chantel, our kids director, Pastor Matt, our student pastor, the the simple things like the, the bookshelf that says parent resources in the entryway that can help resource me as a parent, just a member of this church as to ways that I can spend spiritually quality time with my kids and, and point them to Christ Jesus. But the most important thing we see in this passage regarding not our hands but our hearts is just the example that children are to what it means to be a Christian 
They personify and characterize the heart of the true follower of Jesus because they are in need unapologetically. This is such a beautiful joining of a God who needs nothing, fully satisfied in himself, needs nothing from us, but who is love. It's his very essence. And yet we come and we need everything with nothing to author, deeply in need of all that he has that we can't bring. He is infinite in what he has to give, and we are totally bankrupt in what we have to bring. And in his grace, he receives us, and the only thing we need to bring is our need. And say, I'm sinful, I need your forgiveness. I'm weak, I need your strength. I'm broken, I need your healing. I'm wounded, I need you to, to mend me. I'm lonely, I need your shalom, your peace, and your purpose. See, that's what Jesus is showing us here as he holds up these kids. And so what that means for us in a beautiful way this afternoon is that in this moment, if you're thinking, I wanna draw near to God, I really desire to pray to him, but I just need to, I need to this week, I need to sober up and then I'm gonna come to him in prayer. Or I know he's, he's called me to be baptized. I wanna publicly proclaim my faith, but I just need to have a streak of not falling into that sin pattern before I come to the waters of baptism. Or I really do want to engage in a gospel community group in this church, but my life is so messy right now. Maybe when I'm not such a hot mess, I'll move towards other believers. I just need to get myself in order and clean myself up before I move towards God or move towards people. Hey, if you feel that way, the good news for each of us this morning is that is not God's heart at all. And if you, you hear that, whether it's from your own heart or it's the voice of the enemy, the word of the Lord speaks clearly through the story and he says, hey, you move towards me and all you need to bring is your need and I am open and ready and willing to receive you. Uh, a book that you may have likely heard of by a pastor named Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly, um, he says this in this book, I highly recommend it. He says, we can't present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. We, if we offend enough in a relationship, gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we're cast out. Walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to see is wealth is a unique danger to our trust in God. Wealth is a unique danger to our trust in God. John Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he puts these stories, and they likely happened, right? Sometimes the Bible's chronological, sometimes it's not. So maybe by the sovereignty of God, these things happened right next to each other, or, or Mark is telling the story intentionally because he wants us to connect these stories in our minds and heart because what Jesus just explained to his disciples through these children as an illustration, he's going to, to show them play out in the life of this young man. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
The story begins with a man running, and that doesn't mean much to us, but 2,000 years ago in the, the ancient Near East, like that was a big deal. You didn't run. You didn't run first and foremost because it was too hot to run most of the time. But you didn't run, more importantly, because in an honor and shame culture that was undignified, especially for a, a man of standing in society like this rich young man, this Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story, and in all their accounts, we learn things about him that he was young, that he was wealthy, and that he had a, a position of prominence in the spiritual order of the day at the synagogue. And so he is doing something shocking. He's running to Jesus. And moreover, he doesn't just run to Jesus. When he, when he approaches Jesus, he lays at the feet of Jesus, kneels at the feet of Jesus, an expression of deep honor him kneeling. And maybe even he's on the verge, whether he knows it or not, of worship. And he comes with a question. It's a, a beautiful question, but we need to look at the nuance of how he's asking it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, is really curious. Verse 18, Jesus says to him, hey, why do you call me good? That's weird, isn't it? Now, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what is Jesus doing here? Is he denying his divinity? Is Jesus correcting this young man and saying, hey, don't call me good. I'm just like anybody else. I'm not special or holy or divine. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the average Joe. Why do you call me good? That's not what he's saying at all. See, Jesus knows that this young man doesn't fully understand who he's speaking to. He doesn't quite get it. And he uses the term good so often like we use the term good kind of in a comparative and superficial way. He's going to, as we're going to see, he's going to think of himself as good. I keep the law better than some other people, and so I'm good. And he's using that same term in a comparative way about Jesus. Hey, you're a rabbi, and you seem to be a better rabbi than most, and so you're a good teacher. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're using good in a cheap way because true goodness is only ascribed to God alone. He's saying what Paul wrote in Romans 3 and the psalmist wrote in chapter 14 of the Psalms when it's written, I have turned away, or all, excuse me, all have turned away. They have, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So what Jesus knows that this young man doesn't quite get is that you can only be good if you're perfect and sinless and only God is perfect and sinless. And so Jesus is, is saying, hey, why do you call me good because he's pressing on this young man's words and saying, hey, do you actually, it seems like you might actually be making a connection between God and myself. Do you see that? Do you see that I'm not just good by comparative means to other rabbis? Do you see I'm good because I am God here in the flesh? And then Jesus goes on to say, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And this young man pipes up. Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Jesus cites a number of the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, where Jesus begins is the commandments, the latter commandments that have to do with how we love people, how we treat other people. And this young man, in a way that he's kind of revealing his lack of self-awareness, the law is not a mirror to reveal his sin yet. 
He's looking at those things and saying, yeah, Jesus, I checked the boxes. <laughs> That's it. I, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't coveted. I'm good, right? He's got a surface view of goodness. He's got a surface view of righteousness. So Jesus, in his kindness and love, he's gonna take him a little deeper. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And what ought to strike us first about what Jesus says here is, is that what happens first? Jesus looking at him, he loved him. This young man is, is lost in so many ways. He doesn't see himself clearly. He doesn't see Jesus clearly. And, and we see once again Jesus' heart for the lost, people that are far from him. How does he feel? He loves him. And in his love, he's moving towards him and inviting him to follow me. It's a reminder of, to follow Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's a reminder for us as a church to reflect that heart to people that are far from God, that we would love them, invite them to follow Jesus, proclaim the depth and the riches and the width of the heart of God for them. And so he says, in love, go and sell everything, give to the poor, follow me. See, Jesus, in such an ingenious way, he's so wise, and he, he knows hearts. And so he, he started with those interpersonal people, love people commands, but he's saying, hey, now we're going to take it to the beginning, and we're actually going to start with commandment number one, because what I know about you is that you're not following the first one. Number one, have no other gods before me, the one true God. And you have a God that you love more than the creator, your maker, the one true God. You, you worship and you love and you've not like a child put your trust fully in God, but because you have so much, you, you have worshiped and are worshiping the God of money and the God of money is the God that really has your trust and your hope and so Jesus, in love, knows that. And he's saying, hey, lay down your worship of your idle money and, and have treasure in heaven. You give that to the poor and you come and receive true treasure. You follow me. And then we see the reality of just the grip that his possessions have on him. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It's a strong language here. He's downcast, he's gutted, he's devastated. And you guys correct me if you can think of another instance, but I was thinking really hard about it. I can never think of another encounter with Jesus in all the New Testament where somebody came to him and then went away sad. And yet, if this is the only one, I think that's a big deal. This man ran to Jesus and now he's, he's walking away, dragging his feet. He knelt at Jesus' feet and now he's turning his back on him and walking away. Why? He thought his own possessions were a greater treasure than Jesus. He didn't truly see how good Jesus was, that he was the son of God, his savior. He preferred his own earthly treasure to the very treasure of, of heaven. 
And he wouldn't get up, give up his wealth for Jesus. He gave up Jesus for his wealth. Sinclair Ferguson, writing about this story, he says this. Speaking of this young man, he stands as a perpetual monument to the fact that if we have everything but we have not Christ, we ultimately have nothing. So look at what Jesus says. He looks around at his disciples and he says, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, who, said to him, who then can be saved? See, as this young man walked away in sadness, we just get a sense that Jesus turns to his disciples also in sadness and says these words and drives the point home through this illustration. And much has kind of been written about this illustration, but this is the bottom line. It's, it's, it's Jesus taking the biggest creature that was alive in this region at the time, a camel, super large, super stubborn, and taking the, the smallest opening that he can fathom, the eye of a needle, and saying, you think of the biggest thing and you think of the smallest thing. Take, take that monster, that stubborn beast, right, and try to put it through this impossibly small opening. It's just that easy for somebody with great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples, as we should when we hear that, you're shocked and you're astonished. And, and you ask, well, who then can be saved? Because his disciples, like many Jews at the time, thought, hey, if somebody has wealth, that's a sign of God's favor. They must be close to God. And Jesus is pushing on that and saying, hey, actually, great possessions, when you put your hope in them and, and they actually possess you, that's a clear and constant present danger and it prevents us from being childlike and coming to God needy as we truly are. It deceives us, riches, where we think that we can put our trust in them and not our maker, our creator, the giver of all good things. And so they ask, well, who can be saved? And then Jesus gives this powerful, simple answer Jesus looked at them and said, hey, with man, it's impossible. It's impossible to get a camel through an eye of a needle. That's the point. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus says, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Hey, anybody in their own effort, they can't be saved. But, but everyone can be saved because God can save anyone. I think this moment, when we look at our own lives, when I was just examining my own soul this week, I think it's just a moment to slow down and ask God for grace and mercy and help. We are the most prosperous people in the history of the world who live in one of the most prosperous cities in our nation. So even if we are poor, and that is real and hard, and yet even if we are poor, in this culture at this time, we're still living a life that is rich compared to kings 200 years ago. It's, it's amazing. 
So this has everything to do with our own lives and we should be struck with the danger of of not possessing money because there's lots of righteous people in scripture and even in our church that have great wealth, but to each and every one of us, whether we have riches or not, there's a clear and present danger for that wealth to possess us and for us to put our hope and trust in things not Jesus. And so, well, how can we discern if that's an issue? I think we should just assume that it is. And ask ourselves things like, hey, are there artifacts of me following the invitation of Jesus here, the command to actually give to the poor? Is that a priority in my life, my family's life? If it's not, money might have a hold on us in a way where it's a hindrance to our dependence on Jesus. Giving to the mission of God. Am I consumed by stress with, with finances? that I carry those burdens and I don't cast them on Jesus? Am I continually living beyond my means because I put my hope in riches and stuff and I think I'm gonna find joy in them and I'm not trusting in God? And if you find yourself feeling that, we have an invitation, not condemnation, but we have an invitation to move towards God. And my prayer this week and my, my prayer for all of us this week is what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter four. Despite this being constantly present on every basketball court and football field. This isn't a verse about athletic ability. This is actually a verse about possessions and treasure. And this is what Paul says. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So may we come to Jesus this afternoon and say, would you give us the grace and strength to to steward what you've given us in a way where it's not a hindrance to trust in you, but it's actually a means to worship, to glorify you. Lastly and quickly, there's one more thing we need to see in this passage of scripture. Third, every sacrifice we make for Jesus is met with incredible reward. I'm just going to read it to us again. Peter began to say to him, hey, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So we can always count on Peter to speak up, right? He's that guy at this point. He's well established. He's gonna speak first and he's gonna say something even if he doesn't know what to say. We can always count on him to say something and thank God for Peter because when he says something, Jesus usually speaks up and we get some beautiful truth. And so we just sense that that maybe Peter, because he senses Jesus feels sad or maybe this guy's getting a lot of attention and so he's feeling, we don't know what the motivation is but we, we know this is what he says. Hey, hey Jesus, look at what we've done. We've left everything. We, we weren't as rich as that guy, but we've, we've left a lot. Aren't we great, right? 
Jesus had just said something amazing about God. Nothing's impossible for God. And then Peter chimes in, and he's not chiming in in worship of how faithful God is and how gracious. He's, he's chiming in in this what seems like to be a statement rooted in a bit of pride and, and self-conceit. Hey, we've left everything. We've earned your love. Here's the resume. Here's, here's a word that describes us, and it's not childlike and dependent. It's, hey, hey, we followed you. We're sacrificial. We're okay, right, Jesus? And what Jesus says is so surprising. He gives a warning. We see that at the end, sensing the pride in that statement, saying, hey, many that are first will be last, and the last will be first. But he does recognize, yes, you guys have sacrificed. You've left many things to come and follow me. But then what he says is so surprising. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands. That's a lot of stuff. For my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. I had to read that so many times in the last few weeks to make sure I was understanding it correctly. I'd read it before and it was like, is that right? Was that mystery? interpreted by the gospel writers. Like, what I love about Jesus, he embeds in there with persecutions. He's saying, hey, this isn't just like some name it, claim it, faith, false gospel where you come to me and everything will be perfect all the time. He's saying, it is a cross to bear following me. You will be persecuted. And yet, Peter and all disciples, when you leave something or you sacrifice something for my sake or for the gospel, you won't lose it in this life, but now you'll receive it back a hundredfold. Elizabeth Elliot said this, you can never lose what you have offered to Christ. And so through conversation with Anna and just through prayer, I've been just like asking, hey, what does this look like? How have we seen this play out as a church? And it really is beautiful and true. So perhaps you're in this room this afternoon and and let's say you're a young woman and maybe in college you begin to follow Jesus. You gave your life to him. You're saved. You put your faith in your king. And you have a father who has made it clear in one way or another that he thinks you're taking this religion stuff a little too far. I mean, like in moderation, sure, it's helpful, but you you seem to be kind of radical, fanatical. And he's discouraged you from following Jesus. And you've sensed and you know and you feel in a real way that because you're, you're receiving the love of your heavenly father and you've given your life to God that your, your biological dad has withdrawn from you in a way and you just know that There's been a cost and a sacrifice. And in a real way, because you're following Jesus, you've lost the encouragement and the affection and the presence of your earthly dad. That's really hard, right? And yet I believe what Jesus is saying here is that that's a real and true sacrifice. And he sees it. And yet, because You've given your life to Jesus because you've come to him with your need and you've trusted him because of that sacrifice that you're making. That in and through the body of Christ, that over the course of your life, 
you're going to have a hundred dads who are spiritual fathers, who will encourage you in your faith, who are proud of you, who will serve you and reflect the love of your heavenly father. Perhaps you're a family and you've foregone a a raise and moving to another city because you felt God has really called you to this city at this time and yet the, the paychecks don't seem to catch up with the expenses and it's hard and there's real sacrifice and the emergency fund isn't what you wished it would be. Jesus is saying here, because of that sacrifice, you actually have a hundredfold emergency fund and if anything does go wrong or breaks by the grace of God, you have community in Christ. They've all given their treasure to Jesus and then that treasure is there for you when you're in need, like it has been in the church for 2,000 years. I thought of my friend who planted a church a few years ago in Asia and had to unexpectedly come back to the States for an extended period of time, months, without a plan, without a place to stay. And yet what I saw is that there were multiple houses for him to stay at that were amazingly nice. Beautiful cars that were given to his family for a season for him to drive and and anything that they could imagine and above anything they needed was given to them. Yes, they sacrificed to go plant that church and yet when they needed anything above and beyond a hundredfold, God provided. And so yes, There is sacrifice to follow Jesus. There is trust. And yet Jesus is communicating to his disciples here and and to us in the scripture that, that Jesus never holds out on us. He always takes care of us. We can trust him fully. And as Elizabeth Elliot said, there's nothing that we can offer to him that we lose. Jesus says, we'll get it back a hundredfold. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that we can't earn and we don't deserve your love and entrance into your kingdom, but it is freely offered by the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And so whether we are far from him and we've never come close with our need this afternoon or whether we've been following Jesus for a long time, I pray, Spirit, you would help each of us come close to God with our need, with the assurance that everything we need is found in him. Help us steward what you've given us in a way where our possessions don't own us, but you own our possessions and we use them for your glory and for our joy. And may we not be scared to make sacrifice because we know that you care for us and anything that we walk away from for your sake for the sake of your gospel that in abundance you reward us in. Help us grow in our faith. We pray all of this, Jesus, in your name. And God's people said, amen.